I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So growing up, I always thought there was something different about me. Um, For some reason, I was just really bad at sports. Hey, I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. And this is Kent Hoffman. Kent's a producer at Spark, but he's been working with us for the past few months. I remember in school there was this national program called the Canada Fitness Awards. It was a national fitness program in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. It was run by the Canadian government. And students could win a gold, silver, or bronze medal. Well, actually a sew-on patch in six different athletic events. It was kind of like the Olympics, but with teachers in charge. And if you couldn't win a patch, there was the participation pin. Like participation and action. And Kent, he ended up with a collection of these pins. And I just won the same participation pin year after year. And I I used to imagine what it would be like to win a bronze patch just one year to wear on my coat. Some of my classmates would walk around with years worth of patches. And they they just look like 10-year-old five-star generals in their jean jackets. I used to dread the Canada Fitness Awards. There was this one event that sticks in Kent's mind. It was from around grade three. It it was the day we were doing the 50-yard dash, and I was actually really looking forward to it. It was a a sunny spring day, just the perfect day for medal winning, or at least winning a patch. And I got up to the starting line, it was on your mark, get set, and on the teacher's whistle I was off. And I just gave it everything I had, and the soccer field around me was just flying by me, and I felt great as I crossed the finish line. And the teacher clicked her stopwatch and looked at me and said, you gave it half an effort. And I I was sure that half an effort must have been another way of saying amazing effort because I just ran so hard. But I soon realized when she said half an effort, she really meant no effort. And some of the sports commentators in the schoolyard certainly had no problem sharing with me that my running was really slow. And I remember being really confused by it. It it, it just felt so fast to me. And I, I really did run my hardest. But even though he tried his hardest, Kent never would win a gold, silver, or bronze patch. And he was pretty much an adult before he understood why. Kent will take it from here. If I wanted to tell someone one thing to help them understand me, I'd tell them that I think about walking all the time. For me, walking requires focus, where I place my feet, how to keep my balance, how to avoid falling. With every step, I take a quick glance forward and then down, forward and then down, always on the lookout for anything that could make me trip, or if someone staring at their cell phone is about to knock me over. On long walks, there's no real getting in the zone like a long-distance runner. If I don't pay attention, I end up on the ground. Falling's not that bad, really. I've always done my own stunts. And over the years, I've figured out how to fall without hurting myself. It's getting up again that's the problem. 
Like some veteran boxer who's taken one too many punches, it takes everyone in my corner to get me back up. Around my senior year in high school, something unusual showed up in a blood test. After visits with doctors, trips to hospitals, and in a few years DNA tests, I was diagnosed with something called Becker muscular dystrophy. I'd never heard of it. It's a progressive muscle disorder that affects the skeletal muscles. Those are the ones you need for movement, so a lot of them. It's a milder version of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but like a lot of people, until my diagnosis, I didn't even know there was more than one type, and I certainly didn't know any of their names. The type I have, Becker's, affects 1 in 35,000 men worldwide. So it's rare, they told me, but it doesn't seem so rare when you're the 1 in 35,000. Why couldn't I have won a raffle instead? I remember this literal feeling of a pit in my stomach when the doctor first said the words muscular dystrophy. I knew something was up, but that wasn't the answer I was expecting. They said there was no real treatment, no cure, and they didn't have any real answers. It would progress over time, but nobody could say how. I didn't know of anyone else with muscular dystrophy, so it seemed like there was no one to ask. One pamphlet they gave me at the hospital stated hopefully that many were able to walk until age 35. But still, along with that diagnosis came this strange sense of relief. There was finally a reason for all those participation pins. The only thing I really knew about muscular dystrophy came from watching those Jerry Lewis Labor Day telethons that ran for years. Those programs raised a lot of money, and I'm sure he meant well, but it was a damaging view of disability that was pretty common at the time. Don't tell me you can walk in the street because you're healthy and your children are fine and you pass a dystrophic crippled in a chair. Don't tell me that you don't step to the side slightly because it is a little horrendous. Don't tell me you can walk by and not give a damn for that child in that chair. You do give a damn. Well, it's a discomfort for you. It's an annoyance to you then I defy you not to do something about it. Let's clear the streets of those obstacles and those annoyances. All you have to do is make a pledge and give us some money and let's rid the streets of those little things that get in the way of your pleasure or, ple or your pleasant day. It sort of portrayed people with muscular dystrophy as victims who should be pitied. People who couldn't possibly get by without the charitable help and attention we gave them just once a year on Labor Day. It was that image of disability that scared me more than the disease itself, so I hid from it. When I was first diagnosed, I was still walking pretty well, so I didn't think of myself as disabled. But what actually began for me was a lifetime of trying to hide it. I'd convinced myself that this was the best attitude, that there was kind of a strength in being stoic. I was diagnosed when I was about 17 and just becoming an adult. After that, I didn't bother seeing a doctor again for 10 years. Eventually, I did have to start dealing with muscular dystrophy. I couldn't run anymore, not even slowly. It was getting harder to climb stairs. But what I was getting better at was hiding it. By this time, I was starting to fall, so the time and effort I put into hiding it became even more exhausting. During a night out with friends, I would explain these sudden falls by saying I had a few too many. 
At family gatherings, I would slip in through the side door so no one would see me struggling to get up the front steps. I'd turn down invitations to sports events or concerts with little explanation because I didn't think I could manage to get to the seats without a railing. I'd say no to dinner invitations at restaurants and old buildings, where a trip to the washroom might mean navigating a rickety set of stairs to the basement. About ten years ago, a friend of mine was having a patio party after work. She lived in this third-floor walk-up with two long, narrow flights of stairs to get there. But her apartment had this great rooftop patio with a kind of funky spiral staircase leading up to it. I'd been to her apartment a few years before in the winter, and I knew climbing those stairs was going to be really hard. But that rooftop patio? I just knew I couldn't manage to walk up a spiral staircase going straight up. And I'm sure everyone there would have been willing to help, but the thought of having all my work friends awkwardly trying to get me up those stairs was just too much. Yeah, sorry, I can't make it. One of my kids has a thing tonight, I told her. It sounded like an excuse. She looked disappointed. I was disappointed. So why didn't I just tell her? I know she would have understood. I just didn't want to make a friend feel bad because her great rooftop patio wasn't accessible. Hardly anyone at work knew I had trouble with the stairs because I'd never told them. AC here. Coming up, Kent stops hiding. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, you... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I never want to dwell on my disability, but trying to hide it from yourself or others just reinforces the idea that disability is something to be ashamed of. But how can I help change attitudes about disability if I can't even acknowledge my own? How can I hope for a world that's fully accessible if I can't even tell people when I have trouble getting around? I was always afraid that if I admitted I was disabled that people would treat me differently or that they'd expect me to act differently. I'd see disabled people portrayed in TV shows or films in ways that were just far from reality. They were either models of inspiration or bitter and unable to cope. Was I going to end up like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump? Rolling around a trashy apartment in a wheelchair, looking for a bottle of Ripple while telling Forrest Gump and God to kiss my crippled ass? I've met disabled people who are really inspirational. And I've met some who get frustrated from time to time. But mostly, disabled people just live their lives like everyone else. There are things I can't do anymore that I miss, and a lot of them have gone away gradually. I remember trying to take a short bike ride many years ago and struggling with it enough to know that it would be my last time on a bike. When my son played hockey, I used to imagine how great it would be to join him on the ice just once for a game of one-on-one. Or when my daughter was a baby, I would think about what it would be like just to be able to pick her up from the ground and hold her over my head and swing her around to make her laugh. But 
I've got lots of great memories of the great times I had with my kids and other things I've done, and I, I try not to waste a lot of time thinking about the things I can't do. But I have spent time trying to figure out how all this fits into what it means to identify as someone who's disabled. I read a quote from a disability activist named Liz Jackson that had a real impact on me. She said that oftentimes disability means an inability to choose your own identity. Your identity is sort of chosen for you. So how do you take control of that identity without being defined by it? Back then, I didn't really have an answer. For years, I'd been hiding it, but a cane is something you can't hide. I had to accept the fact that I need a cane to help me walk around when I'm outside and sometimes even when I'm inside. I was starting to fall on a more regular basis and I was pretty sure it was only a matter of time before I broke something. I couldn't always keep my balance or walk upstairs easily or step over curbs without one. This realization hit around the time of my 40th birthday. At first I put off using one, likely just because a cane is so strongly linked with being old. It just seems so foolish when I think about it now. The first cane I finally did decide to use was called a travel cane. This type of cane can be folded up and packed away when you're done using it. To me this was perfect and I used it on my way to work. So every day about a block from work I would fold up the cane and hide it in my backpack. I thought that if nobody saw me walk in with my cane that my secret was safe. So on this one really cold January day I was close to work and I went to fold up my cane like I did every morning and, and it was just stuck. It was just completely frozen together and so I spent a few minutes in the freezing cold just struggling to try and pry this cane apart and I took my gloves off to do it and my hands were really cold and I was I was just trying to force it apart and, and, and it just hit me how ridiculous it all was. So I just headed into the building and I was just bracing myself for all the staring and the nosy questions that would come up when I walked in using a cane. And I, I got off the elevator and I headed for my workstation and nothing happened. I saw a few people in the hall and nobody said anything. That's just a bit of luck, I thought, so I tried it again the next day and nothing happened. Or the next day, or the next day, or really any day. Finally, being more open about using a cane was a big change for me, but I still wasn't very open about why. Part of the reason I think it's been so hard for me to come out about my disability is that I've never talked to anyone else with Becker muscular dystrophy. It's a rare condition, and I've never met anyone else who has it. But I've never really looked either, and I decided it was time to change that. It only took a quick search on Twitter to find someone else with Becker's, Michael Moore is a vice principal living in Toronto. I sent him a message and asked if we could talk. Hello, Michael Moore. Hi, Michael. It's uh, Kent Hoffman calling. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, do you have a moment to talk right sure. now? Yep. I feel nervous calling him. It feels a bit like being called to the principal's office. I thought it might be awkward for us to talk, but we do have one big thing in common. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a relatively rare disease. Right. And even in terms of muscular dystrophy, that's not one of the most common kinds. And even in people's mind, most people don't know about Becker's, but they think mostly about Duchenne. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like a lot of people don't even know it exists. Yeah. Or even if I say I have MD, most people hear MS. Exactly. Yeah, I'm got... very clear, but they think of MS. Yeah, exactly. I get that same thing. So. Mm -hmm. 
That same confusion that Michael talked about happened to me a number of times over the years. It became clear to me very quickly that Michael and I share many of the exact same experiences. I was wondering why it had taken me so long to reach out with someone else with Becker muscular dystrophy. You said you're 52? Yeah, that's right. And so us still walking, that's uh, that's not that common in yeah. your 50s to still be walking. We're quite fortunate. But mostly in common, though, most people are not working in their 40s, 50s. Mm -hmm. um, but I've heard of very few people that are still working even in their 30s, 40s. Yeah, yeah. No, I've worked here for 30 years, and I consider myself pretty lucky because of that. I, though, consider myself lucky that I'm still walking, but I think part of why I'm walking is I'm still working and getting exercise and, and stretching mm -hmm. by still walking, so I think it's all interrelated. I guess around the time I was 40, I started using a cane outside all the time, mm -hmm. and so I, I still walk around inside without a cane because, you know, there's carpeting and things to lean against, and it's not so bad, but outside I pretty much exclusively use a cane all the time. And that's gone pretty well. And what I find now is more it's just getting up and down is sort of the added kind of problem. And, of course, you know, stairs are always the issue, right? So, so you can stand up unaided? That's, yeah. Like I need to lean on a table or something. but I, With your hands. Yeah. Yeah, I progressed beyond that the last couple of years. It became very difficult to just use my hands to get up. Plus, I've really sort of screwed up my left shoulder. Oh, the amount right? of um, of um, pressure that I was putting on it getting up and down really has messed it up. Yeah. And so now I put like a chair in front of me mm -hmm. with arms, and then I put my knee on the chair in front of me, and then use my knee on that chair, and then my arms to lift me up. Oh, I, see. I can't. I can't stand anymore. And my my um, specialist actually said you lose the ability to stand before you lose the ability to walk. Oh, I see. So, yeah. but really, if you're not experiencing like the later stages, there's very little that they, that they can say or do. Yeah. And the disease is so variable mm -hmm. that they can't even make a prognosis or a prediction, even for an individual, really. Michael hit on an aspect of this that's really hard to deal with sometimes, that it's just so hard to predict what will happen. The last time I saw a specialist, she seemed impressed that I was still walking over the age of 50, but I just don't know how long that'll last. But again, just talking to Michael for a short time, it was reassuring to find out how many experiences and feelings about this that we shared. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the shoulder problems because I've sort of lately been having that issue of just, yeah, putting a lot of strain on the left shoulder, right, from you know, exactly what you talk about. So That's why you might consider, try it sometime, get an armchair in front of you mm -hmm. and then put one knee on it and then lift yourself up using your, your legs and your shoulders. It's less strain on your shoulder. Oh, okay, I'll practice that at home a bit and uh, yeah. try that out. Michael had lots of helpful suggestions, and I asked if we could stay in touch. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. It's, uh, you know, means a lot to be able to talk to someone else with the same thing. I know, I know the feeling. He really did know the feeling, and after talking to Michael, I felt a lot less alone. I think we spend so much time trying to prove that we're independent that we refuse to reach out to people or ask for help when we need it. But we all need help, 
I think we have this human need to be helped because it shows that other people care about us. But yet we still feel kind of ashamed to ask for it. A few years ago I was on my way home and crossing a busy street in downtown Toronto. It was a stormy winter day and I sensed the wind picking up. And suddenly there were these huge gusts of wind and I was, I was struggling to walk in it just like everybody else. And I was halfway across the street and this huge gust just took me down like a leaf. So I found myself lying on the street and looking up from the ground and I was a bit stunned and I could see the tires of the cars coming towards me and hoping they were going to stop. But then I realized I wasn't going to be able to get up on my own. And this whole group of people just gathered around me and they all worked together to get me back on my feet, which really wasn't easy. The driver seemed to realize what was happening and nobody was honking their horns or getting impatient about it. But after they got me up, I was still only about halfway across the street and I could still feel the wind gusting. I knew that there was a pretty good chance I was going to fall again. And one of the people there who had already helped me must have picked up on the look on my face. And he just put his arm around me and told me to hold on to him. He was a complete stranger, but we walked across the street, arm in arm, and he got me to the entrance of a building that would allow me to walk the rest of the way indoors. Before he left, he asked me if I was okay, and I quickly tried to explain to him what had happened and why. And he just stopped me and told me not to worry about it. And I thanked him, and we both went on our way. I never found out his name, and I never saw him again. But I felt grateful that someone would just help out a stranger like that. I'm likely going to need more help and support as time goes by, but so will everyone. Telling people that I have Becker muscular dystrophy is just a way of asking the world for a bit of extra patience. And to help me out from time to time, just like that stranger did, without questions, without judgment, and without expecting anything in return. Kent Hoffman. That doc was produced by Kent. It was edited by Allison Cook. You can read more about Kent's story or maybe even share it with a friend on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. And please, before you go, if you enjoyed today's episode, rate and review us. We read all of the reviews. They make my day and they help other people find us. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, and me. Kent Hoffman is now back with the team over at Spark. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.